Hey there, boardroom listeners. I want to tell you about RideList. It's an app for your iPhone, a peer-to-peer rider's market for boards, gear, photo equipment, snow stuff, mountain bikes, etc. You can find, you can share, and you can sell action sports gear with those like you, those who ride. RideList. Matt Biolis is forthright. He is direct and without evasion. Blunt talking and straight shooting. This is Matt Biolis in a nutshell. Some might say gruff, but they've only seen the thin exterior crust of Matt. Surfing in California during the 60s and through the 90s, there were definite regions and natural geopolitical boundaries that were delineated more or less by the surfboard you rode. That's where the politics comes in. Myself and other Delmartians, our crew generally rode Channons or Bill Menard surfboards, or Channons made by Bill Menard, or Nectars, or sometimes Sunset surfboards or Encinitas surfboards. But once you went into La Jolla or up to Carlsbad, well, there were boards built for the guys from those regions, and we didn't ride them. The one board that our stingy, ignorant, contemptuous little crew of ne'er-do-wells would never ride, which we hated, was lost. Why? Because in our little pea brains, those boards absolutely reeked of San Clemente. Not just San Clemente, but everything that was bad about San Clemente. Loud, brash, arrogant. That's where the magazines came from. And we hated the magazines. Even though we subscribed and devoured them. In reality, our small-minded snottiness was born out of jealousy. The lost surfboard brand was blowing up. The surfers that rode them ripped. The lost marketing was cutting edge and, frankly, funny. Lost was simply cooler. Years later, I was lucky enough to get a job at those surf magazines. And that's where I first met Matt Biolas. It wasn't necessarily a good meeting. He and his partner, Mike Riola, basically called me out for a video review I had written about one of their lost videos. But I was struck by how businesslike they both were. They let me know how they felt, and then they left without any lingering animosity, without any resentment. They had presented me with respect, and therefore I was forced to respect them. And I have ever since. Both Mike and Matt are straight-up good people. Matt Biolis on the Boardroom Podcast, brought to you by the Ride List app. Let us begin. All right, the Boardroom Podcast. I'm sitting here with Matt Biolis, and uh, Matt was just—I was just showing him one of our T-shirts. Surfers are the worst T-shirts that we're going to have for sale. And uh, Matt asked me, he goes, "Do you know why surfers are the worst?" And Matt, fill me in. Why are surfers are the worst? Why? Why are surfers? Well, you tell me. What was your answer? Well, my thing is, we're generally self-centered and selfish, and and we're we're sort of egomaniacs and. Basically, that's selfish. Yeah, pull that mic a little closer to you, please. Yeah, we're selfish. I mean, who the hell, who else in society turns their back on society and stares at the horizon for hours at a time, decades at a time? We literally just turn our back on the world, stare off to sea. Exactly. Hold on. So, welcome, Matt. Um, 
before we get too involved, I want, I want to get some insight into your beginnings. Um, tell me a little bit about where you grew up. If you, what what was it like? Do you have siblings? Where did you? Where were your formative years? I was born in Anaheim. I lived in Central Orange County until I was like eight or nine. Um, kind of bounced all around Anaheim, Westminster, that sort of stuff. Why? Why? Why would you move around? Oh, I don't know. Just like I don't know. We started out. I think we started out. My grandparents owned a apartment complex. Like, I remember it being like twelve units around a pool, and my dad was the manager of the complex. Hmm. But he also worked a full time job, and then he wanted a house, so then they bought our own house. I think they paid like fifteen grand for it. It was like right off Beach Boulevard, right there where Huntington and Westminster meet. Mm-hmm. I went to Cecil B. DeMille grade school. That's sort of a rough area now, relatively. Yeah, and it's like all little Saigon now, right. but it wasn't, I don't remember. I mean, I was so young. Yeah. yeah how cool is that? Cecil it's B. still DeMille. there. The school's there. Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, was, I didn't know it, but I was really close to Surf Central. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, and then my father worked in aerospace. I mean, he managed those apartments in his in his off hours, but he worked in aerospace in Irvine when it was all aerospace there. Was he an engineer? No, he was a machine. He was a CNC operator at mm-hmm. first. Right. Smith Tool, Parker Hannifin, um, all these big aerospace manufacturing plants that used to be out there. Yeah. And then he got bumped up. Uh, he got like headhunted and turned and asked if he wanted to be a traveling salesman for the company that makes these carbide inserts, the, the, the cutting heads that go on the CNC machines. And he took the job and his older brother had a boat and he, they'd been going out and fishing and all out, out of Dana Point and digging it. And he got the new job and he came to my mother and I, I have a little brother who's five years younger. I don't know. He would have been so young that he didn't even know, but, and he's like, look, we got this new job. We're going to have more money. We can buy it. And my grandmother had a house in the Palisades, San Clemente Palisades, right above Capo Beach. And we had a little boat, and we would kind of keep it down in the harbor and hang out at my grandmother's. And So that's what got me into this area, mm-hmm. really young, yeah, like eight, nine, eight years old, nine years old. Right. And my dad's like, we can buy uh, a house away from the beach. And be able to buy a really good boat and keep it in the harbor, or we can buy a house by grandma's down by the beach, but we don't think we can do both. Right. So they bought the house away from the beach, and we bought like a 28 foot Sea Ray or something, got it in the harbor. And from that point on, I kind of lived dual lives. So, yeah. Yeah. And your, and your parents, did they both stay together or they divorced? My parents stayed together their whole life. My mother died uh, 16 years ago. Ten days after my first child was born, that was traumatic. Yeah. And my dad lives on that boat still. Really? Yeah. We've had a boat in the harbor there since, I don't know, 81 or something. Right. And my dad, when I, my brother finished high school in 90 or 91, they moved onto the boat mm-hmm. and lived on it together for 10 years. My mother passed and my dad's still on the boat. It's like three or four boats later now. I think we have, we have a 36-foot Californian trawler. Uh-huh. Classic. Does he take it out or is he just no, parking it? Not anymore. Yeah. But we we did summers in Avalon. I used to go to the Isthmus and Two Harbors and cool. did all that. We lived that life when I was young. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kids and you're quite a family man. You have, I want to say four kids? Four. 
Um, they, they've grown up to know their grandfather, which is cool, right? I mean, I know yeah. they miss their grandmother, but they got yeah. to see their grandfather. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so obviously you had some ocean connection here um, in yeah. San Clemente. We Ta- lived in Chino, uh-huh. we Chino High School. Um, Where's that? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. It's somewhere it's a lot inland. closer now than it was when I lived there. Now with the toll roads and everything, mm-hmm. gosh. We used to be stoked. We we were surf we were surf crazy. Were there other surfers at Chino High School, Very or were you few. like, yeah, you were, you guys few. were just there was like three or four of us. Three or four of you, and you were just stoked. And we all live here now. Yeah, um, it wasn't really the thing to do. Right, big football town and cow right. town, and lots of big white guys. Um, back then, all the cows, all the dairies were there. And big Dutch boys, so mm-hmm. had a hell of a wrestling and football team. Right. Um. But we had this boat in the harbor, and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles lived here in Capo Beach. Yeah. Which is cool because we had two lives. Yeah. Um, we did all those crazy inland things that you see, like, on maybe Dazed and Confused type of movies. Right. Know? Cruising um, the – Yeah, skating these the classic Badlands spots. I skated the, the pipeline at Upland. Cool. Relentlessly. We were snowboarding in 1982, and I was coming down to the beach and doing all – the ocean stuff with sailing, fishing, snorkeling, yeah, yeah, and eventually surfing. Okay, so you got a you got sort of a surf beginning in high school through you having sort of a dual life here in San Clemente, and probably through the magazines and stuff, and just being a skater, it was just part of the deal. Um, not I don't know. I mean, I, I was in junior high, and after about. Six years of lingering around the dock in the harbor. My mom got me a boogie board. She says, go walk over to Doheny and keep yourself occupied. Mm-hmm. And I boogie boarded for like a couple months, maybe. And then a buddy of mine had just turned, I was like 13. My buddy just turned 16. And he's like, we're going to go to the U.S. O- we're going to go to the OP Pro. We're going to go to the OP Pro. This is 1982. And he drove us. And I was there when Shane Haran did the 360 and the shore break. Right. And we were like, that's it. We're never boogie boarding again. <laughs> and we scrambled and did whatever we could to get surfboards. That's um, cool. So the OP Pro and, and Shane and just that, all that hoopla because it was it really a big – It worked for me. Yeah. You know? It got you excited as a grom. I could see – yeah. I was already hooked. And yeah. I, but I still don't think they're going to convince people in Idaho to watch surf contests on the WSL. Right. <laughs> right. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. But it worked for me. And so, so we we, fig- we started surfing – like within right there, I have to have a surfboard. Right. Yeah. But you had caught your first waves of Doheny on a boogie board, like yeah. many of us did as young kids in California, yeah. and you got involved in the surf culture naturally because you were by the beach and you visited the OP Pro, and and off you went. Mm-hmm. Um. So high school ends, and how do you find your way here, sort of permanently? Um. Well, and what year sc- was high school ending for you exactly? What? What? What exact year was high school ending for you? And June of '87. Right. And I was already spending my summers in the harbor. Right. Um. We spent forty weekends a year on this boat. Right. You were involved. My mom would pick us up from school. So a lot of times at lunch, race down. My dad would leave. You know, he was in Irvine working, so he'd meet us in the harbor, and we'd be there from Friday. I mean, I'd surf. I'd surf. Before dark, Friday nights, surf Saturday, surf Sunday. And then we had my brother and my mother and my father and I. And we'd literally, my mother and my father would race each other home. I mean, this was in the glory days of no seatbelts and cigarettes in the car. And, yeah. And race each other home on the 5 and the 91. Uh, 
And where are you surfing as a junior or senior in high school? Are you at campgrounds? Are you at lowers? Are you at Doheny? We surf middles. Yeah. We definitely surf middles. In the winter, we'd surf strands, the reef at strands. Mm-hmm. I'd surf rights off the point at Salt Creek in high school and the boards. Um, what was that like as far as you getting fitting in? Was there was there a scene there? Was there a you know, dedicated scene? I had as many friends in Dana Point as I did in Chino by that time. Right. You know, I spent summers in, yeah. on the boat. Uh, I was working on... I was working in the boat business. I was I, by the time I was fifteen. I'm an em- enterprising Jewish boy. Okay, I, yeah. Fifteen years old. I had my dad's inflatable with two tanks on it, dive tanks, a hundred foot of hose, and I was cleaning boat bottoms. I had my own accounts. I was doing twenty boards a month before I could even drive. Right. On weekends when my parents wouldn't want to come to the harbor, you know, they just want to chill. My mom would have to drive me down so I could do some boats. And I'd write little invoices and lick the paper and put it cool. in the envelope and send them to my customers. And because of that, they'd allow me to stay there in the summers. And my buddies that I grew up with would come stay with me and we'd surf. Um, I, st- I ended up getting a job in the Dana Point shipyard, which is there on the jetty at Doheny, mm-hmm. that boneyard there. Yeah. And I worked in the shipyard. Wow. And learning all the things, to, with, apprenticing for a shipwright and doing all the dirty work there. And then a buddy of mine in Dana Point was building boards in his garage, and I kept watching him. Who was it. that? Huh? Who was his that? His name was Ryan Tallmeyer. Yeah, Ryan Tallmeyer was building surfboards, and this was your first introduction to shaping a surfboard. Yeah. Yeah. And this is right around, right around 87? You know, even before Not, that, uh-huh. like when I was in the middle of high school. Right. Yeah. And what was – so tell me about Ryan and your experience with Ryan. Ryan's a classic. He's a – He's an illicit farmer in Northern Cal now, and killing it. <laughs> but back then, I mean, he had a he had a garage. His parents' a garage. Yeah, or something. standard stuff. He had that George Orbison How to Build a Surfboard book, uh-huh. and he did it. Yeah. And I remember watching him and just thinking, ah, I could grab those tools and do it better. And and um, I went at one point. I went to Surfside Sports when they were in the old building on the on the beach. Uh, and upstairs they had all the surfboard supplies, and I bought a blank and um, shaped it. And I watched him glass the boards, and I hated – I didn't <clears> – <throat> I watched him glass the boards, and it was just looked so sloppy that I went on the Yellow Pages and looked it up and found surf glass in the Yellow Pages. We glass surfboards. And I took it there. I took my shape blank there that I painted also. And Ron House was the owner. I used, I still talk to Ronnie. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you're not bad. Not bad. Do you want a job? I'm like, yeah, building boards. He's like, no, cleaning up and driving the truck. <laughs> I said, hell yeah. That sounds better than working at the shipyard. Okay, interesting. So Ron House gave you your first job. Ron House gave me my that first job. That is cool. Job. In the surf industry. He had just bought the factory from Chris Santley and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and Chris was still there. And then basically Chris Santley taught me how to sand. And Where was Surf Glass exactly? Right there by Surfer Magazine used to be. Uh-huh. You know, like Cali yes. Perfecto there. Right? Yeah, yeah, like um, the San Juan Capistrano. Basically behind the coach house. Yes, yeah. right. Yeah. I remember that place well because one time you and Riola came in there and read me the ride act about a video review I did. Of- well, because you were out of touch. <laughs> you were so hopelessly out of touch. It's true. It's I like think people you're right. writing, it was like people writing off punk rock during the during the journey era. <laughs> like, what are you thinking? <laughs> this is what's real. So good. And and you know what? You're right. <clears throat> I think I have apologized to both you and Mike since then. I was out of touch. I think you're right. I was out of Thank you. Um, So tell me about, um, you got a job with Ron. How did you get from there to building 
I had lost to leave. Surf I had to course. leave surf class. Right. There was there was no way up. Well, there was it was just production. There was he had the Bill Stewart account. He was they were crushing it, just building you know twelve Stewarts a day, whatever, and then a few other things. Is this like 91, 92, no, 93? this is 87. Mm-hmm. This is 87. So the longboard thing is just going Richter right there. Yeah, Billy was killing it. Yeah. Um, and no, but Chris Santley said, hey, man, there's something really cool happening down the road. You want to come help? And I'm like, what? He goes, you got to come down to Herbie Fletcher's shop. And at the time, Tom Sutherland, Sudsy ran the factory in the back, and Jim Nudo ran the shop in the front. And the building's still there. It's my building now. Well, I don't own the building, but Catalyst. It's the Catalyst store. Right. Um, the factory in the back, retail in the front, on Coast Highway, Ocean View, Whitewater View. Not many of those in the world. No. And I started there late in the summer of 87, and I've never left. I was there this morning. Yeah. I've been there for over 30 years. And when I got there, it was like, okay, Christian Fletcher's 17. He's walking in. Nathan, his little brother's straggling in. Uh, Walter Hoffman's walking in and out. Mike Henson's staying in a camper in the driveway. Reno Abelero shows up and needs to use the shaping room. Okay, this is it. This is the real deal. This is what's happening. I want to be here. That's cool. That is yeah. so great that you were just kind of in, you know, ground zero of ground just zero. hardcore San Clemente like surf. little shop guy that I would, and I was good with my hands yeah. and willing to work. And I was just there. I would do anything anyone needed for help. Right. I'd do anything. Paskowitz, Jonathan Paskowitz, you need help. I just jump. I'd what do a anything crazy time. time. That sounds like a crazy time, 1987, 1988, with that whole crew that you just mentioned yeah, running right. through there. And, it was awesome. Yeah. yeah. And so I imagine that sort of sowed the seeds a little bit for, for when I think of Lost in 1992, say, and maybe yeah. my year's off or whatever, but mm-hmm. I think of complete irreverence. Yeah. And and I often ask myself, and I think I know the answer to this. I don't think it was manufactured. I just think that's where that's what you guys were. And Something when I say did. you guys, I mean you and Mike, and maybe fill me in if there's others that I'm it missing. Was, out. It, was, it was me and Mike. Yeah. yeah. You guys were just irreverent 22 year olds just going crazy. And, yeah. and, and the Lost brand sort of took off, right? I mean, the surfboard brand, Mayhem, fill me in on sort of between 87 and 95 or whatever years. You know, when it was really at its germination point. Yeah, I mean, just to start at the beginning, I sang in a punk rock band in high school. We played parties and did gigs. And what stuff. was that called? Mayhem Ordinance. Ah. Spelled without an I, which means weapons. Ordinance, not ordinance, which is a law. Okay. But we were little weapons of mayhem. Oh. And I was the singer, or screamer, yeller, whatever you want to call it. But um, do you still sing? <laughs> Anyways. Like in the car by yourself? No, your kids? my daughters do. Um, you sing, you just don't do it. Yeah. You're just not telling me. Yeah, I'll get up at a party and throw one out with the groms. You know, <laughs> do blood stains or maybe a black flag one here or there. But um, So my big influence was Southern California hardcore shows. Yeah. Going to shows all through high school. Yeah. My same buddy, Paul Burton, who actually owned – the guy who took me to the U.S. Open, his name's Paul, and he has a glass shop in town, Ghetto House Glassing. We've mm. been – buddies since cool. for 40 years uh more than 40 years he also happened to be 16 when i was 13 and took me to punk rock shows i had no business being at who would you like would you see like 999 and stuff like that was a little before my time that's yeah. like 79 80 that was more yeah. like the hardcore like su- california hardcore suicidal tendencies yeah. the circle jerks yeah um all the all the that's... oxnard bands mm-hmm. um you name it i saw it corrosion of conformity and gosh cool yeah, 
that was my biggest influence, the do-it-yourself punk rock way of doing things. So we, I, was at, I was at Herbie's. I was doing my Mayhem boards. It was the obvious name to put on my boards, Mayhem. And, but my buddies and I, we called ourselves Team Lost because we were like the misfits. We didn't fit in. We didn't surf good. Yeah. But we, would, we could party and have fun, and maybe your chicks would like us more because we weren't so serious. Right. right. Yeah. We were dreaming. But, um, yeah, we were a team. We called ourselves Team Lost. So I would just scribble Lost on this board. If I painted a board, I made a mayhem, I'd sign Lost on it. If I painted a quiver for Christian Fletcher or Matt Archibald or some of the famous guys at the time, I would put little Lost logos subliminally in it. And some of the local kids caught on to it. The kids that would, like, then the lower-level kids who would let me shape them boards, like yeah. rudimentary sloppy shapes, Yeah, they would, like, oh, paint a big Lost on it. We're Team Lost. And then these other kids around us, started doing little lost insignias and and tagging it on a rock at the beach. They kind of grabbed it and ran with it. Interesting. And Riola, I was living in a crash pad with like five guys just working at Herbie's, making mayhems here and there and doing all the work I could for all the other brands in the factory. And Riola was going to university in Florida. He's a gator. Mm-hmm. And he would crash on our couches in the summer. Mm. And he's like, he's going to business school. And he's, he was a great surfer at the time. And he's, he's, He's learning again. He took a few years off. He did all the comps and everything. He's like, we can make something out of this. This is how brands start. He's like, yeah. if I'm going to be finished with school in another year or two. You just keep doing what you do. I'm going to learn what I learned. He goes, we can do something out of this. I'm like, huh, what, really? And he's like, no, we can do it. Do you specifically remember that conversation? Because yeah. that's actually one of my questions. Is I when was, specifically when remember him saying, don't do anything stupid with anyone stupid. I'm going to be done soon and we can do this. Cause I, and, and this is like 92 or something? Or? I don't know, 92. No, no, 90. 90. Yeah, because we started in 91, and it was Mike and I and two other friends, Chad and Aaron. And we kind of did it a little bit. Then Mike went back to school. Chad and Aaron got jobs. I kept doing what I was doing, and then Mike came back. And in 93, we just started full on ourselves, just him and I. But you already had this sort of guerrilla marketing with the local younger kids yeah, yeah, around town. Just, just they like, actually told just us spread the Vince De La Pena. Oh, Vinny huh? would be like, we'd be out at Wrights Off Point, and he'd be Matt. That lost thing that you put on the surfboard. He goes, "Why don't you make T-shirts? Why aren't you doing T-shirts with your art?" I go, "I don't want to make clothes. Clothes." And he's like, "I'm starting a clothing brand. You should, you should think about it, Vince." I remember that specifically. Yeah. Um, I'm sure Mike was hip to that too, right? Well, Mike was hip to it. Yeah. Yeah, because. And he's the one, if you're going to do this, and then the local kids are like, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. So we did some T-shirts, and Mike kind of sat on the corner on the side and said, hey, when you're ready to really do it right, I'm in. Yeah. And so um, what was it like when, like, Matt Archibald's walking through the shop and going, hey, I kind of like what you did over here. Make me one of those. Like, I mean, as a young shaper, you must have just been ecstatic. To well, have- he wasn't asking me to shape boards. I don't think I've ever actually shaped a board for Matt. It's but, funny. I mean, guys like that, guys yeah. that were, like, the hot guys at Lowe's or just, whatever. It was great. Yeah, I was fortunate to be around. They were my age. Christian's six months younger. Matt's six months older. Yeah. These guys, they were my age and they were ruffians. You know, they weren't, you know, they weren't Mike Parsons, who's a great friend of mine now, but, you know, they were like edgy. They were irreverent like you guys were. They were sort of San Clemente guys. And I had the punk rock thing and I could draw and I could paint and, and I was, I could get dirty and do whatever they wanted. So we got along good from the start. I was lucky. So you start building boards, but you're also doing work for other guys. And, and um, at Primarily. what point? At what point were you just like, I'm just? We are at a point now where I'm solely doing 
um, Mayhem's Lost Surfboards, and we're also rolling the Lost brand out. And we are now – this is now my business. We like, started doing – we started making T-shirts and apparel in 93, really, like going and finding screen printers and driving to L.A. and buying the first rolls of fabric and taking it to the sewers in, in Santa Ana. And at that time, I was probably getting enough orders just for Mayhem shapes that I wasn't doing any work for any other – any other companies yeah mostly local guys in San Clemente. I would say by 91 I was living just off my own shaping and painting of my own brand of mm-hmm. boards um the first four years I was like they were doing Christian Fletcher boards and I painted them all I used to go down to Tony Shannon's when Steve Boyson had the shaping account for Christian Fletcher surfboards I'd go down there and paint line up 20 boards in that giant factory and paint them all yeah yeah met, and, Bill, met Bill Bain then and yeah, all that. yeah on the hill there in Westlake and then yeah what um so that's interesting because i never really pinned that artwork on you i always think and this is just my naivete is i always think metzner or you know like that whole kind of rock and roll um kind of gothic mm-hmm. but bright sort of uh and not, maybe not rock and roll but punk rock vibe that was your art um I'm, that you saw in early lost yeah and yeah. and on christians World, oh, the Christ- yeah. my best friend and i growing up we did the first couple hundred t-shirts our yeah. own, just him and I. Yeah. But yeah, all the stuff you'd see on Christians, the flaming priests, the the crazy monsters, the pentagrams, all the Archie Indian heads and American flags and all that. Yeah. Mm. All right. So the the brand's taken off and, and who you know when I think of Lost and I think of like the one iconic team rider, there's two guys that come to mind for me and please help me out here. One of them is Chris Ward. I surfed with him yesterday. You won't believe it. Yesterday we surfed lowers. It was me, Chris Ward, and Kelly Slater on the peak. Wow. How fun was, is that? It was classic. For that's, like an hour. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm sure not too many people paddle up and challenge. No one paddled <laughs> up and challenged. No one. It was beautiful. That's a pretty good place for you to and be in your life. Kelly was, you never know what you're going to get with Kelly. And he was super overtly talkative and and funny and him and Chris were comparing notes on their young, on their 20 year old daughters and which oh. one's going to which school and all oh, that. Cool. Look at you guys. It was bizarre. That is funny. Yeah. But Chris, you know, um, he's a guy who sometimes can be his worst enemy, at least from my perspective. How has your relationship with Chris Ward sort of evolved? It sounds like it's great now, but was there a time when it was like, man, I, I got to distance myself professionally. Yeah. We still, we don't, you know, we have to, my relationship with Chris has always been good. Yeah. I've always through thick and thin. Um, I know that he, he deep inside, he's a good guy. You know, he, he loves his family. He's taken, you're talking about a man who's supported his family since he was 15, 14 years old. Yeah. I mean, even when he was on rusty before we signed him up, when he turned 15, he was already supporting his family. Yeah. Um, you know, so deep inside, and not even that deep. He's just generally a good guy. He's yeah. got substance issues. Yeah. And he's got anger issues, which I do too. So I can kind of, I can kind of understand yeah. a lot of his issues and a lot of his blowups and mistakes. But I mean, yesterday we were laughing, we splitting peaks, and actually today, before I came here, I was digging around our trading pile and I found him a few boards. He says, "I need some boards. I'm going to go surf back door for a week." Or a month or whatever, and I haven't given him really or sold him or I've never sold him. I've been giving him a board in a long time. Yeah, 
I literally on my way here went to my factory, found a couple boards laying around that would work, and here take these to Hawaii. Um, cool. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You mentioned an anger issue within your, you know, that you might have. How do, how does that manifest itself? What is what do you mean you have an anger issue? Well, if I get mad, I I get mad. Well, I mean everyone gets mad, but I mean you I can, get mad you can control on it. You can control it though, no? I can control it enough to not go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um another thing that that most of hardcore surfers think about when they think about lost is the videos that you guys put out. Um and Videos were a lot easier when you when you got a 15 year old Chris Ward and 16 year old Corey Lopez living on your couch. Yeah, and then Riola, you know, he just was the one that said, "We have no money. We have no way to can't do ads. We can't compete with these Billabongs and Quicksilvers, but we can we can hit them with or not, and we can make a movie. We can make movies." It was all his idea. He stood on the beach for hours at a time, and. And I basically supplied the boards and gave it the punk rock attitude. You know, like my favorite movie was Decline of Western Civilization. Right. So I was like, we're going to do it punk rock style. And I had all my records from the 80s. And we bought a little recorder that you could down, you could play your record and it would record it onto the VHS master tape. <laughs> so those were just all. It was all vinyl to beta. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. But it was all like no rights. No, just like we're no rights. Just, one, I mean, by we, we started calling the record companies yeah, and I would get them to send me like Interscope and all these guys would send me albums. They, yeah. And, but I would never, they would say, here, try all this, tell me what you want and we'll write up contracts. Well, I'd never do the second step. Right. I just get all the stuff. Yeah. And we'd, and that's how we met the guys from Sublime. And next thing you know, Sublime's on our couch playing music. And, you know, we used those Everclear records. We used, we ended up getting some amazing music. Yeah. But it started out mainly using my punk rock 80s vinyl. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And and there was an interesting character in these videos and some of them. His name was Randall. Yeah. And um, Randall was sort of kind of a – and again – he helped me characterize Randall, but I would suggest to you that from my perspective, 
he was sort of this kind of loony, sort of ne'er-do-well, kind of like San Clemente, um, um, ne'er-do-well, you know, that just somehow kind of was around probably your house or your guys' Randall was a homeless person who lived in the tomato fields that used to exist behind the Herbie Fletcher factory, which is now the outlet mall. And he somehow managed to hold down a full-time job at the 7-Eleven directly across the street there on Pico and Coast Highway. We all kind of knew him because he would talk, hey, what's up? How's it going when you go in there and buy beers or whatever for the boss, Nudo? Or you go in there and buy your lunch or whatever. We're always in and out of that 7-Eleven. He worked there all the time. And one night I was staying late painting boards. I'd, I'd line up eight boards on all the hot coat racks and I'd do my brush stroke hand painting, the kind of art my daughter does now. And he's like, what are you doing? What's going on? And I go, if you're getting off, cruise over and hang out. Bring over a couple of those little mini fruit cocktails. You know those little canned cocktails? Yeah, canned alcohol. Yeah, the canned <laughs> alcohol. I got a good story about those. Gordy used to come and drink those at night in the factory. While, while the hot, his Gordy, Gordy Gordy, the yeah, man. the Gordy. Yeah, he'd come down. Gordy and, from Huntington Beach, Gordy. Yeah, Gordy from Huntington Beach would come and sit in the factory while one of the hot coders, his name's Paylone, Jerry, he would come down from Huntington and hot coat at night. And Gordy would come with them. And they were doing things that were pretty radical, I'm sure. What do you mean? You know. Substance, you mean? Yeah. 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 So they were getting into it. I get you. Yeah, but Gordy would send me across the street to buy a bunch of those canned Mai Tais. And he'd sit there and sip on those Mai Tais and tell me how fucked the world is and how it used to be better. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> oh, my God. So good. Yeah, it was awesome. Canned alcohol. Yeah, so Gordy. Randall came over with some canned alcohol. And he'd sit in the corner while I painted boards. And we just talked. And I just let him go. Um, so I was the first one to invite him over to the factory world. And then he started getting to know everybody. And he started coming over when we'd have little Nudo parties in the front. Yeah. Um, Nudo was the owner and he'd throw these wild parties. And he slowly started becoming a, a character that hung out. Yeah. He got fired from 7-Eleven and they started mowing down the tomato fields where he was living. So Nudo let him live in the cab of a broken down truck in the driveway at the shop. Right, and then he became the shop, the, you know, the cleanup guy, the shop clown. The, mm -hmm. Then Mike and I got the house that we really launched Lost out of down in the in the ghetto down there by Robertson's Gravel, and we we built a warehouse in the back. We built a half pipe. That's where you see all those classic scenes from those early movies. Yeah. Well, we let Randall live in our backyard, and we told him you could just be our butler. <laughs> so Randall was our butler. That's and crazy. then it all really started to steamroll from there. But he was already hanging out at our factory, living in the driveway there for a couple of years before that happened. And he, in the videos, he was sort of like, um, you know, he was just the adventurous sort of clown, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, he was, you know, he he was just, just doing crazy gesture. shit. Yeah. yeah. He was a butler slash jester. Yeah. And, um, and it became like, you almost like, okay, in the next Lost video, how can we up what Randall's going to do? Like, he kind of... Was turned in he like he was jackass before jackass almost. Yeah, yeah, those guys like Danger Aaron and some of the jackass guys. I think they they put they they thanked us in the credits of like the first one. Right. Yeah. yeah and, they were influenced. And Randall. Where's Randall now? And I know there was some. I, don't know. I haven't seen Randall. In, weren't there some legal issues with Randall? Like, didn't he? He, you know, there's a, it's not Randall's and, fault. Randall's a simpleton, you know, homeless guy. He, he settled in with us. We took care of him. We literally had him on a salary at one point. When yeah. we signed the big license deal with La Jolla Group and yeah. Loss was doing legitimate business, yeah. we were paying him like a legitimate salary just to hang out, just right. to be Randall. Right. And we took him to all the trade shows. Right. So the problem is you, it's just like like 
like a kid that's a rapper and gets a hit song or a young rock and roll guy, groupies. The fucking groupies ruined Randall. You know, just surf party dudes. Come on, Randall, let's go party. Come on. So, yeah, come on, Randall, let's go smoke a joint. Come on, Randall, let's drink some beers. Come on, Randall, let's have a shot. Come on, Randall, let's do some speed. And then all hell, and then everything goes downhill. Right. You know, the drugs get, it goes from the party to the not party. Right. And he got crazier and crazier and unstable and and it, it wasn't fun anymore. Was there a situation with Randall where it was like, you know what, you're causing legal issues on our brand now? No. I mean, no, how did the, how did you part ways with Randall? I think he kind of did it on his own. And then he'd come back and he'd be all whacked out and crazy and we're like, you got to go. You're done. You know? The rumor mills suggested that there was some legal action that he was taking, that he wasn't getting his fair share or something like that. Is there any truth to that? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. It's all a blur, but... I mean, we we literally paid him. Yeah, nothing. yeah. We got, we tried to get him teeth. We took him to dental. We we offered to yank all his teeth out and replace him with choppers. And yeah, we did a we did all we could. Yeah, uh, I would just say that in the end, it's just like you go to the trade show and we all have to work the next day. So yeah, we're partying. We're at the trade show party, and then at one in the morning, the vampires are grabbing him. And yeah, a couple after a year or two of that, he wasn't Randall anymore. Right. He wasn't a fun-loving kind of butler. Yeah, he he turned into a vampire. Yeah, yeah pills, yeah. speed, whatever yeah. it was. It brings people down. Yeah. ASR parties or trade show parties in general, you guys are sort of known. Um, any thoughts on some of the craziness that the Lost Brand and Real and you, you know. Hey, got, we just want, got, we just. You yeah. guys are just irreverent punk rockers. fun, yeah. you know. The surf expos were good back then. It was great when they used to have those little drink carts. They would wheel around the surf expo. Yeah. And Riola would just give the chick like 500 bucks and put the brakes on the cart and just park it here for the whole day. And yeah. That stopped. Those drink carts were great. But, you know, we, we were just doing anything we could do to make noise and make a statement. Yeah. Where, the, you know, Quicksilvers and the Billabongs and later on the Hurleys of the world with their, you know, quarter million dollar booths and their beautifully merchandised and developed clothing and their slick marketing, you got to do something to combat it. What do you got? You use your weapons. You use what you got. It's yeah. marketing. Yeah. Yeah. So we did what we did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Volcom did the same thing, but they were almost like, they were like, Clones. The two, they were like the two combined. You know what I mean? They, they were, were they were the Quicksilver, Billabong, and all that. They had the education, the money, the know-how, the power, but they portrayed differently. Well, you guys famously like put out like ad- manufactured punk, right? Know? Yeah. You guys famously put out a series of ads, or maybe it was just one ad that I recall, where it was a full-page spread mm-hmm. where you somebody it might have been you. Somebody did yeah. some artwork that basically yeah. lampooned. Vol clone is how you yeah, put it, and you yeah. really kind of what you just told me now is yeah. Displayed. Well, we did it to everybody, but yeah, but you did attack Volcom pretty hard. Yeah, I don't say it wouldn't call it an attack. I would. I, would, I think <laughs> Lampoon is a better name. Is Mad Magazine attack everything they do? No, it was okay. You're right. Okay, yeah. let's say it's a Lampoon. We were the Mad Magazine. We yeah. we gave a little brevity. We would spend eight ten grand on a two page spread, and it would be just a total freaking joke. We'd dress Randall up in our women's line, and that was a two page spread. And we would pay ten thousand dollars to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's classic so, stuff. Yeah. Did Wolcott ever 
Did those guys ever kind Richard of go, Wilcott and I have never had an ill word. I've surfed with him, snowboarded with him in helicopters, never, nothing. But either. back then, was anybody at Volcom reaching out and going, hey, you guys, come on? Or was it just like no. like when you saw each other at trade shows, when you saw the Volcom crew and the I Lost crew? To, I'd go to setup day. I was a grunt. I would work. I would sweat. And I'd go to setup day with Tucker Hall, one of yeah. the original founders, and him and I would drink beers while we set up the booths and laugh. Right. Maybe, yeah, there was never anything... Right. It was just. I, I mean, sort of remember the ad guys at Surfer going, oh, no, what are we going to do? We're going to get a call from somebody at Volcom. Oh, yeah, maybe so. But I'm just saying. Yeah, man, you guys man, were all good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I learned how to surf with Troy Eckert. He was Volcom's head of marketing through all that. We yeah. learned how to surf at Doheny together. And, do you um, think Volcom was sort of secretly uh, <clears throat> um, je- jealous of, of such a great punk rock oh, brand known as Lost? There's no well, they sort of mimicked your vibe a little they bit. They didn't mimic our vibe. They just youth against decided, establishment. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty punk rock. Yeah, that was lost. Yeah. So I mean, at the time, I'm 24, 25 years old, and like, wait, these guys are all like executives at Quicksilver, and yeah. you know, on the U.S. surf team, these guys aren't punks. These right. guys are marketing punk. Right. They're Newport so, Beach punk. But it was, yeah, it was, yeah, whatever. I just think back then, because you, with age, all of us kind of mellow a little bit, but. I sense that at some point on the couch at your house, you and Riola have had a couple of beers. You're probably going, fuck those guys. We learned from them. Yeah. We learned from all those guys. Yeah. yeah. But we just said, they can't get mad. You know what I mean? Because we're just, it's like calling a spade a spade. So we tease. But right. once again, what do we use? What's our weapons? What do we have? Yeah. What, do, what can we poke fun of? Yeah. It's funny you use the word weapons, but you say you're not attacking. Yeah. Weapons of mass buffoonery. <laughs> you mentioned Corey Lopez. He's obviously on my list of guys, the two guys that I think of when I think of Lost, mm-hmm. as far as professional surfers, Chris and Corey Lopez, who um, probably did more I'd for like the I like to think brand. the kids today think more of like Mason Ho and Chloe and Dino and <laughs> the modern. Well, Mason's certainly cut from the same cloth as um, – Sort of, he's sort of like Chris and Corey combined in some ways. Yeah, but Corey, let's focus on Corey Lopez. Yeah, how important is he to the Lost Brand? Oh, he's he's in and his brother as well. I mean, yeah. you can't mention Corey without Shay. Right. You know, Shay was my first surf coach. Shay's right. like, if you're going to hang out with people like us and make boards for people like us and travel and go to surf contests and make videos, you need to learn how to surf. I'm like, I know how to surf. He goes, No, 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 no. Learn how to surf. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> I'll learn how to surf. Um, mean, they're very important. I yeah. mean, Corey's inherently inherent to our success. Yeah. He knows it. But we he also knows that Mike and I gave him a platform to show who he was when the Taylor Steels of the world had no interest in him. Mm, that's you interesting. Know? So yeah. we gave him a platform to shine. Yeah, this Momentum movie, I guess, is coming out on HBO or whatever. And certainly, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Maybe you've just given them to me, but... I mean, hey. I mean, wasn't Corey Lopez a part of that generation? No, I don't think he was. No, no, they were a few years younger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kalani was with Kelly yesterday down there. and Those guys are all older. Yeah. yeah. Corey's a good five years behind them. Right, okay. Yeah, and Chris, good five, six years behind them. Yeah. So um, this movie comes out, um, lost five by five. Yeah, five by nineteen. Like, that was like our 
fourth movie. I mean, we did this. We did the dysfunction. We did a, our first movie. It was called Momentum Three. <laughs> Classic. Taylor, Taylor had already done Momentum One and Momentum Two. And this and is another. There's a stab lampoon. Yeah, that's where Stab Magazine comes from. They're, Stab Magazine started out the same way. It was, everything was taking a stab. Right. You know, and then and then Sam's turned it into something far more legitimate and mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. So um. Our first video effort we called, we literally labeled it and went out on the road and gave it away and called it Momentum 3. Um, I was vehemently against that pop punk sound bubblegum soundtrack that they were using. All these, I consider them just fake punk brands. Like Blink? Like, yeah, all of them. There yeah. are so many of them, Down by Law or whatever. There's, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah. Um, unwritten Down by Blink. Or, <laughs> it's just a <laughs> bunch of crap. Right. And... uh so we decided, okay, we're gonna show the world. We're gonna show these kids what real punk rock is, and and we made our mess. Momentum three. Taylor's people sent us a letter, so we threw away all the covers and we renamed it Dysfunctional Family Reunion, and then that went on for a while. And then we made What's Really Going On, and we had a couple partners in that. Jason Kenworthy, the photographer, yep. was our partner in that. Another guy named Ryan Ray, who yep, works in I know media Ryan, to this yeah. day. And they were a little nervous, a little scared, and we we wanted to push it. Mike and I wanted to push it harder, and they were like, "No, no, no, we want to," you know, they wanted they wanted to fit in a little more, right? So we split after on, and Mike and I said, "Okay, fuck it, let's do it now." And we made what's really going wrong, uh-huh. and that's the one, and that's the one where we had Chris Orr, the heroin addict, surfing and partying, and 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 like. Uncut, yeah, like let uncut. it let it roll. Right. Yeah, we said this is this is what's this is what's really this is going, what's wrong. going wrong. You can't say, oh, I can't believe you showed that. Well, the movie's called What's Really Going Wrong. Okay, and then we had all the party scenes, the hair burning, the Mexi vac, and we basically tried not to pull punches. We showed as yeah. much as we felt we could, that the surf shops would allow to be in their store, right, right. and some didn't. Right. Know? And is that your? When you look back on sort of your video catalog, is that one the one? It seems like I sense that that's the one that you're sort of most, I don't know if proud. That's the, the right one word, you guys nominated. You guys gave it like 11 nominations without one win. <laughs> that's kind I think of you nominated us for every single category, the surfer poll, but we didn't get one win. It was almost like, okay, you guys might have made the greatest cult surf movie of all time, but we're not going to give you a single award. I, I'm going to blame Ben Marcus for that. I, I like Ben. I'm a big. I do too. A lot of people don't like him. I love Ben. I'm a Ben Marcus fan. I am too. And I'm just happy. I think he got us from the start. Yeah. I think yeah. he's, I think there's a little. And so did Baralotti. Yeah. Steve. Yeah. 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 Th- those, you know, back then those video awards, as you know, I mean, we had people vote, but there was just an in-house editorial meeting with Steve Hawk. Yeah. You just sat in there. Steve Hawk definitely didn't get us. No, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, know it's fine. You know, we had a blast, and then we did um, on the road with Spike, which was kind of a collaboration with a with a with a British filmer guy oh. who had had all this footage, and he came to us. He's like, "I got all this footage, and I don't know what to do with it." And we padded it with a bunch more of ours, and we edited it and put it together. He ended up dying in a skateboard accident, unfortunately. Oh, wow. Spike, um, and then he got hit by a car or something. Or? I can't remember. Yeah. Mike would know. Mike remember. Mike knows everything. Yeah. Um, and then so we, other videos. Then we did the fish movie. Uh huh. Five five by five, nineteen, five, and, 19 a and a quarter. And that one was kind of groundbreaking, at least from a surfboard design standpoint. I yeah, mean, that was, was kind Drew of Todd's like, idea. I was with Drew yesterday at Lowers. It was uh-huh. Drew Todd's idea. We, he had he had been traveling with Chris and Corey, getting all the footage of them on the fish. 
he ran into Slater and he got he filmed that stuff of Kelly at Burley Heads. Let me ask you this: when when he did all this footage, was he thinking? No. So it's like he looked at the footage and went, you know what we have here? We yeah. have five five. He, he threw the idea at Riola. Riola came to me. Drew thinks we should make a movie just like because you know Taylor was just doing surfer, surfer, surfer section, surfer section, certain and then the whoever had the best clips went last or blow, you know. And, and what we had done at Lost is we mixed and match and we'd do sessions and surfer sections and we'd mix. So Drew had the idea. I give him the credit for the idea of doing it as a fish movie, and. You know, I did all the artwork, drew the logos, designed the cover. Him and Mike labored over the editing. Drew even picked half the soundtrack, which up until that point, I picked the entire soundtracks. Um, Were you just too busy doing boards at this time? Just, no, you know, he was just kind of running kinda, with it. Uh-huh. You know, he was involved. He yeah. had a lot of the ideas. Um, he's like Riola. He's a well-educated guy Yeah, um, with the creative. Is that kind of your management style when you see somebody that you can trust that you're like, you know what, this guy's got the chops, go do it, and you just you just kind of are confident that it's going to get done, or do you get micromanaged? Herbie Fletcher told me when I was a kid, make sure anybody you hire is better than you are at what you ask them to do. Yeah. <laughs> Not easy, but... Good advice. It works with ghost shapers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fascinating just in its own. Um, so... The videos that Lost is known for, of course. Um, throughout Lost, your brand, Mayhem Surfboards, Lost Surfboards, how do you prefer, by the way, being called? Nah. Prefer what being called? The the surfboard brand. It's the, Lost Surfboard. Right, shaped by Mayhem. Yeah, it's like Polo and Ralph Lauren. Right. Channel Islands and Al Merrick. Right, Lost and Mayhem. And people are like, oh, I'm riding a Merrick. You're not riding a Merrick. Merrick hasn't shaped in 10 years. You're riding a Channel Islands. Right. Yeah. Brit Merrick. Sure, but it says Al on the boards. Right. It doesn't say Brit on any surfboards. I hear you. No, I'm not saying that in a negative way. But no, I'm just saying just, you're riding the Channel Islands. Right. Yeah. yeah. Your team now, um, it's it's pretty robust. In fact, your team's always been robust. It, it seems like you've had sort of a team strategy of, hey, give that guy a board. <laughs> you know, like, let's get as much, let's throw a really wide net and see what we catch when we pull it in. You're it's usually pretty natural, though. Our team is almost always developed through natural causes. We've rarely gone out and headhunted someone and said, I want you to ride my board. Have you ever done that? And if so, can you name who it was? When you're like, Usually Whoop. it ends in tears. When you do that, it ends yeah. in tears. They don't respect you. The best right. thing is to do the farm system. Right. You know, you raise them from the farm system. Right. And those guys now would be like Eli Hanneman. Yeah, Eli Hanneman. Noah Beshin. Noah Beshin is second generation lost. Was his entire life. Taylor Clark. These are your young guys now. Taylor Clark's kind of already. He's twenty. Working his way to be done. Yeah. Um, he's a great surfer, great guy. Um, but yeah, young guys now. Jet Schilling. You know. Um, I don't know. It's yeah. hard to just pull them off right. the top of my head, but. Well, you you Eli's have definitely a focus. Right. But you bring you bring them up as a farm, and then you grow together, and you succeed together. Um, have you had those type farm guys that have bailed on, on you? Well, every single person on our WCT roster right now, yeah. except Caroline Marks, qualified riding our boards. Oh, interesting. Okay. Every one of them, whether it's Chloe Griffin, Joan Duru, Yago Dora, you name it, and the, and the girls, Michael well. Rodriguez, Michael Rodriguez, Malia Manuel, Carissa, Tyler Wright. Maybe Tyler Wright Coco. didn't. No, Tyler Wright didn't. Coco Ho, of course. Yeah. Coco's at my house this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
those you've got like 10 CT surfers on your boards right now. I didn't do the numbers. I didn't try to figure it out. But conventional wisdom would tell me that you probably have more CT riders riding Lost by Mayhem than any other brand out there. No. Well, just because we have this thing with the women that's kind of unprecedented, it just sort of happened. Um, but as far as men go, you know, we have, we have, I don't know, we work with like five guys. But the women thing is, it's like, if you look at Channel Islands or JS or even Darren Hanley, they might have eight or nine men alone, seven, eight, nine men alone. Really? Yeah. JS has seven or eight guys on tour riding JS. Probably. Hmm. Those guys do a really good job of working with World Tour athletes. Right. Yeah. And then you've got legacy riders. Yeah. You know, guys like Michael Ho, Corey Lopez now, Taj Burrow, Shane Strider. Nate Yeomans. Yeah. I hope he doesn't well, mind me. Yeomans is our rep. He's our California sales okay. rep. Still um, and, and frankly, you're kind of a legacy writer <laughs> in some regards. I mean, people see you in the water a lot. You're out in the, you're out there. You're in the public eye. Surfing, I mean. Um, Not so, at a very high level, but. Well, but you're on the beach shaking hands, kissing babies. That's important. Is there a strategy? I mean, we sort of talked about this, but do you and Mike like every year kind of sit down and, or maybe Mike's not even involved in this anymore. Oh, he's totally involved. Do you and Mike go, okay, look, here's who our farm system needs to be. Oh, by the way, you know, Joe Blow legend guy needs a couple boards. He's, you know, like, do you guys have a strategy session where you think it through or is it just mm-hmm. organic? Cause it just kind of happened. It's like kind of, you kind of wing it. Like I said, it usually happens naturally. Like, yeah. like whether it's, you like, know, like if you get in a book, I see like you the, and Mark the, Richards. The team managers of the world, yeah. they'll say, hey, I got this Eli Hanneman kid. Right. The one for Eli was Sean Ward. Eli Hanneman, he's riding his dad's boards. There's a couple of people who want to make him boards because I want him to work with someone who's used to working with kids because I'd like him to work with you. And you look and you look at this 10-year-old kid and you see his skills and you're like, okay, I'll take him on. Then maybe another, like – like agent is these behind the scenes agents, right, of the world, like Cersei Wallace and Blair Marlin and these people, they'll say, Hey Matt, are you interested in working with this kid? If they're not and I'll be like, Ah, that one doesn't make sense for me and you just don't do it. Or that ah, I'm interested in that one. And then then there's a thing where you just in San Clemente, if you're like Jet Schilling or Cade Matson, uh Cros or Griffin Colopino eight years ago. They just see Koloe and they're like, I want to ride what Koloe rides. And maybe they're sponsored by another surfboard brand or they work with another shaper. And they're like, dad, 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 I want to go. I, you know, and they see me at lowers and I'm on the beach teasing them and hanging out. Well, I want to ride what this guy rides. So you have the Koloe effect. And that's right. what's going on in this town right now is the Koloe effect. Right. So we work, if they're, best, if they're one of the best surfers and they want to work with me and they're from my town, I'm going to work with them. There's great young surf in this town that I don't work with. And they work with shapers that I'm friends with. And I'll basically straight up tell them, no, you need to work harder with your shaper now and figure it out. You're like who? Like Timmy? Like whether it's Timmy or Cole or Eric Ruminer or whoever. Right, right, like right. I have respect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And unparalleled respect for Timmy Patterson, yeah. of course. Um, so, yeah, like I try and do the right thing. Right. Hey, just a quick break here in the interview with Matt. I want to tell you again about RideList, our new partner. It's a peer-to-peer rider's market for boards, gear, photo equipment, mountain bikes, snowboards. It's an app for your iPhone. You can download it. You can find, share, and sell action sports gear with those like you, those who ride. 
I just logged on to see some stuff, and I found a killer Campbell Brothers Bonzer. I also found a BMC Speed Fox full suspension mountain bike, which I know absolutely nothing about. And a GoPro Hero 3, among other things. There were snowboards and wetsuits and all sorts of cool stuff. There are rideless apps for your iPhone, and it's fast, it's easy, and it's free. It's a rider's market, peer-to-peer. If you see something you like, you simply reach out to the owner via the RideList app, and you meet up and you buy, sell, or swap. RideList, an app for your iPhone. Download it. And now back to Matt Biolas. You know, I had a conversation with Dennis Jarvis. This whole thing was kind of a big deal about this time last year, this concept of putting tariffs or duties on imported surfboards. And I know you have a a deep history with actually fighting this fight. Maybe you can give us your insights on what you went through. How long do you have? I've got a long time. Our listeners want to know because, frankly, you're you're the expert. I mean, you actually did the hard miles. I know. Because all the work was done before social media and almost before most people had Internet. I agree. I remember this. I remember hearing that you were involved in this. I mean, you yeah. you've spoke to me specifically about it at one point. Yeah. Back then. I mean, it's, it would almost take a Google search to figure out what year we did it all. But what happened? I mean, it, you know, tell me as much as you want to tell me. But the listeners would like to know okay, what are your thoughts rec- on a duty? Like what Dennis and Mike Delaney and all and these guys are what they're talking about and hoping to think to. They, honestly, they have to do a hell of a lot more research because it's not what they think. You mean to quickly put a duty There's on a There's no quick court. anything. Right. There's no quick anything, and the solutions are only getting farther and farther away from ever being a possibility. Um, it'll never happen. I'm not saying it'll never happen. Well, with Donald Trump, you know, there's very few positives with having him in the big house, but... He's the kind of isolationist where it, it almost could happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's just did that $250 billion duty hikes on things that were already had duties on them. That's a lot easier. But uh, what, is, it, is, it a, is it a matter of getting a lobbyist to get in front of Trump's people to no. put the surfboard into really the category? Okay, you really want to know. If you if you would, we almost have to like pull this thing out and put it on the side and go click here if you want to hear about the surfboard duty thing. Because just give us the boiled thing. down version of it. boiled down version is in the early two thousands. I was making a lot of noise about I was the only guy that wouldn't do a deal with surf tech, and it was all about surf tech then. It was surf tech, and then it was the Costco boards, like the realm boards at Costco. Those were the big things, and I wouldn't do a deal with surf tech. I go, I'm going to try and develop my own kind of molded boards or whatever. It took me years to get around to it. But the basically, I started doing a little research, and then a guy named Toby Bost, who was the CEO of – or no, he wasn't even CEO yet. He was the operations manager of La Jolla Group, running O'Neill, Loss, and a couple other brands. And he said, hey, Matt, that work you're doing, like you, you, those discussions we had about duties on surfboards and how it's unfair um, – we work with a really good lawyer named Prentice Mitchell, and he helps us. His job is to get product into the country. So all these importing brands, all these companies, they usually have a lawyer on retainer that deals with getting their stuff in the country. Because in the clothing business, which I've been in deeply over the years off and on, everything's got to have really good country of origin markings. 
and almost everything has duties. And you do little tricks and things here to get the duties lowered. Like if you make a jacket and you spray it with a coating of anti-water, it becomes rainwear and the duty is like 50% lower or something. Don't quote me the exact numbers. I understand, but, but there's, there's little there's tricks little that tricks. they do, okay, mm-hmm. to get the duties lower on certain products. Um, and then you go to different countries because duties vary from country to country, which came back in bit. I learned more about in surfboards. So he goes, I want you to go. He goes, go talk to this lawyer. Go have a talk with him. And we'll take care of the first talk. So I told him what I went to the lawyer and I said, this is what I'd like to see. I'd like to see duties on surfboards. He's like, and I'd like to see them be forced to put brand market, put marketing on them of where they were built. Country. He goes, that's COO, country of origin markings. And he goes, I said, the Rumbors didn't have COO, and the, and the surf techs at that point had no COO markings. So the lawyer said, go out and get all the pictures you can of all these products in the stores with no markings. He goes, the law says they have to be permanently marked um, at the time of retail sale. It could be on either the packaging. Some categories say the packaging. Some categories say the product itself. I'm like, well, surfboards aren't sold packaged. So... I went in the marketplace, took all the photos, brought them back to the lawyer, and he goes, okay, this is what we have to do. This is the, how long this process is if you want to see duties. First thing is we can take all these products. we, we got to find out how many surfboards are coming into the country. So he, goes, he logs onto this thing called the Harmonized Tariff Schedule. It's a massive book. It's a book like a – it's a, yeah. And it has a record and an, and, an, and an item code for every single item that's imported into America. Everything. But inside of it, there's what's called basket provisions. And surfboards at that point were a basket, were inside of a basket provision with a cover label of pool toys. Now, this is 15, 18 years ago. Some of the details are foggy, but it was, it was in the basket provision under pool toys with like rubber duckies, swim fins, snorkels, little boogie board mats, you know, kick toys, those rings you throw to the bottom, dive down and get. So the, the lawyer says, you, we don't even know how many surfboards are coming into the country. We don't even know when they're coming into the country. We don't know who's bringing them in. We don't know anything because they're just sliding in under the radar. So the first thing we have to do is pull them out of the basket provision and put them on their own line in the harmonized tariff schedule. And I'm like, what the, how do we do that? And he goes, well, we do this. this, this. Meanwhile, I'm running up a, a bill. Yeah. So I start talking. So I tell Matthew Barker what I'm doing, and who Matthew Barker is now consulting for me a little bit. And is yeah, he's and and just so listeners know, Matthew Barker worked at Clark Foam forever, and Matthew Barker works ran for Clark Hurley. Foam for Gordon for like 25 years. Right. Yeah. Um. So Matthew goes and tells the old man, and my phone rings one night. You mean Grubby? Yeah. I don't call him Grubby. I got too much respect. Okay, the old man. And my wife answers the phone. Gordon. And she's like, Gordon's on the phone. She's like, some old guy asking for you. So I have a big, long conversation with Gordon. He goes, see what you can uncover. See what you can do. Tell the lawyer to call so-and-so and put my credit card down. So Gordon financed me. Cool. Um, so then I start, Then I was free to start really working. So I went back, and, and the lawyer's like, for us to get our own line in the harmonized tariff schedule, you have to – Show that people are bringing in a significant amount of boards and you have to show that they're doing it what would be considered illegally if they were on their own line. 
So I went to Costco and I took pictures of all these roam boards with no markings. And I went to all the surf shops and took pictures of all these surf techs with no markings. And there was a few other examples, but I don't remember what. Yeah. I mean, Tommy Senna was bringing in all those brands to New York as well. Like, ca- like Caster. Like yeah. He, he bought a bunch he of was doing, you know, canyons and he yeah, bought a bunch yeah, of yeah, labels. Yeah. You're yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. Okay. And Tommy's a sweetheart of a guy. But um, anyways, I took him back to the lawyer and he goes, okay, so one time every year there's a certain day that you have to turn in your petition to ask to get surfboards taken out. So we built the case, we attached the photos, he did all the de- dirty work, the details, and we sent it in, and we got we we fucking got approved. Right. We got approved. So they, we actually pulled surfboards out. So if anybody wants to talk shit on me for making boards in Asia, they can yeah. come freaking knock on my door and complain to me in my face because I'm the only son of a bitch that's ever done anything to try and make it better. So we pull it out, we put it on its own line, and now... Every single surfboard importer from that day forward has has to give that number and how many boards by volume and I'm and I think by value. I'm a little gray on all that, but by volume for sure. And right. I'm not talking forty three liters volume, I'm talking volume numbers, numbers of boards. boards. Right. Yeah. And and dollars and whatnot. So now you can go to that harmonized That's book been yeah, and for find like fifteen, out. sixteen years and they've been tracking it. Mm-hmm. And they're probably showing growth which is a good case for putting duties on boards, right? but it ain't that easy. So now the boards can be tracked. So what we did then is, okay, let's do sting operation. So we went to the San Francisco Port Authority, and we alerted them that people were bringing in boards. You guys went 5-0. Yeah, we went to the Long Beach Port Authority, and we sat with the head guy there and told them what's going on. Um, Within 30 days, the Long Beach Port Authority seized a container of lib of uh, lib. What am I thinking? Of uh, surf tech, surf techs. Yeah, and and said and opened up the container and said, "We have reason to believe your boards aren't properly marked," and they weren't. And that's they had to go and mark all these boards. Right. Uh, that's this is what I'm told. Right. Uh, I even got an angry phone message from Donald Takayama himself wow. saying, you smart-ass son of a bitch, who do you think you are? You're costing me money. They told me my boards are in customs because of you. Wow. Yeah. Did you save that message? No, I didn't. That's that's interesting. Yeah. Um. So that was fun. So so then so they so then everybody had to start cleaning up their act. They had you to know, get COO stickers yeah, at least, so but we still don't have a duty or a tariff. No, not even close. Right. So they had to do COO, and then then the other one of the other rules is you can't use a domestically made. You can't use the name that infers something's domestically made on a product unless the COO is of equal size and recognition. So if okay. you you can't say surfboards California and then a teeny tiny made in China, or you can't say like La Jolla Surf Company and have a tiny. So um, the labeling has to be the same. The size. The labeling has to be the same size. Right. So we started throwing that one out there and enforcing that. So you don't see domestic names like even the theory Channel Islands. You know, could be. So the fact that Channel Island surfboards, if they do surf tags, which they do, which yeah. is, I'm not pointing fingers but if someone wanted to make a case against it you literally could make a case that their surf text would have to be labeled just as large as the name channel islands because channel islands is a domestic thing right um and it just depends how much money you want to spend and how if you want to fight with 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 jake burton who's done so many amazing things for the boarding world that i would it's not even 
You don't want to, you don't want to go there. Any sense to me. Right. Yeah. Um, so you start learning all these rules and all these laws that people are just, you get away with, you can get away with. You know right. what I mean? Um, and duties and tariffs. It's just so duties and tariffs is, we can jump forward. Duties and tariffs. To have a duty on a product, you have to show that there's been a decimation of the domestic Marketplace. The domestic marketplace. The domestic yeah. manufacturing, not so much the market. Uh-huh. Um, and you have to have 50% of the domestic manufacturing on board to send in a petition. Right. By volume. So that basically means you have to go to all the glass shops in California and go, hey, have you guys, no, they have, have any like, of you closed? They have to be brand owners. They have to be uh-huh. companies that actually wholesale the board. I see. So you'd have to go to like, you'd have to have like. Like GNS. Would be an example. Channel Islands would be an example of that, where they just make their product. Yeah, but you have to show that they close down. Who cares what the number is? But hundred thousand surfboards a year are sold in the United States, or a hundred thousand are made and sold in the United States. You have to have fifty the makers of fifty thousand of those to step up and say we want to put a duty on surfboards on imported surfboards. I see. Well, the problem at this point now is, is Firewire is probably the largest wholesaler of surfboards in America and all their boards are imported right. from Thailand. So if you want to put a duty on Thailand, you have to do that in itself. You can't do China and Thailand at the same th- time. Right. So who do you, who do you, what do you want to go after? Do you want to go after Firewire, Hayden Shapes and whatever else is coming out of Thailand which are more high-end like respectful surfboards mm-hmm. or do you want to go after China and get all the bottom feeding surfboards, all the right. cheap junk? Yeah. Okay. I've since lost the energy or the, I'm more ap- apathetic on the whole thing at this point. Right. But to do it, you have to have 50% of the domestic manufacturing signed up. Well, Channel Islands has imported boards. Right. I have imported boards. Right. Firewire is all, the three of us together probably make up 70% of the. Yeah, and why would you shoot yourself in the yeah, foot? Okay. I wouldn't mind it. I would. I wouldn't. Yeah. If I had to pay ten percent, twenty percent duty on my carbon wraps that are coming in, yeah. So be it. I make just as many domestically of the of that construction as we import. Right. Um. Anyways, so the main thing is you you got to do that, but you also have to show damage. And you have to show a decline in domestic manufacturing, which I think would be very easy to show, especially on a percentage of boards and retail stores because of Firewire and. GSI and Hayden Shapes and all that primarily. Mm-hmm. It just show it, you can easily show a decimation. You have to have a track record. So right. the work I did 15, 18 years ago to get it now makes sense. Mm. Three to four years later would have been a really good time to try and put duties on because then you could show the growth of the imported surfboards and the reduction decimation of the domestically made surfboards. Then you have to have precedence, just like any law in the world, like Woe versus Wade mm-hmm. or the little black lady in the back of the bus. What was her name? C- Cecil B. DeMille. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> you, no, I know who you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Rosa Parks? Yes. Yeah. Rosa Parks. Okay. And um, you have to have precedence, right? Yeah. So the precedence that my lawyer told me about was the last remaining iron, cast iron folding top ironing board manufacturer in America. And when he started making ironing boards, folding, fold, the classic folding iron board, yeah, metal ironing board. When he started, I guess there was a handful of manufacturers all around America building them and selling them to Sears Roebuck, J.C. Penney's, Bloomingdale's, I don't yeah. know, not Bloom, Macy's, you name Sears, it, right? Yeah. Mom and Pops, yeah. hardware stores, you name it. By the time that this guy, well, all of a sudden this guy's like, holy shit, I'm the last guy making folding iron boards. In America, and everything's coming from China. He goes, I'm still here with my factory, my brick factory, you know, like the classic factories that are all boarded up and rotting on the East Coast. 
All those factories are done. This guy still had his factory and he's making them, but he's dying. He's dying. So then you have to show the, but ironing boards, as soon as they started bringing them in from overseas, they had their own line in the tariff schedule. So he had to show this massive growth and he had to show this great reduction in domestic market manufacturing, massive growth of importing. And then he had to show that they were wholesale, they were landing the boards for less than he could manufacture them. And then the government, I forget what the actual organization is called, says, what is the gap? And they look at the gap, and that's the percent that they put on the duty. Now, this is where lobbying comes in, because the steel companies in America have so much power and so much money that they can go to the government and say, fuck you, no Chinese steel, we want 100% duties. That's what you have in these countries, these isolationist countries like Brazil, where everything from America, whether they can even make the stuff or not, in Brazil gets 100% duties and it's working against them. Yeah. It's actually working against Brazil. Yeah. But that's a whole other story. Right. So anyways, you bring the bo- the guy, the ironing board guy showed the reduction. He showed the mass destruction, blah, blah, blah. blah and he ended up, they ended up coming up with like a 40% gap. They said it, it's cost him, if it costs him $8 to make one or it costs him $10 to make one and China was landing them for $6, they put a 40% duty on them. Well, this is like 25 years ago and the guy's still in business and killing it because now he's almost on parity with the price of ironing boards coming from China. So this is America. the precedent that the lawyer was talking about. What? This is the precedent. So that that's lawyer- our precedent. Right. Yeah. So it could happen. Well, You've done a great job of sort of laying it out. I've learned a lot just just listening to you and getting a little summation. Of yeah, it. but it, it is it, it's a there's a lot to be done if somebody like Dennis Jarvis or these guys that want to make this sort of American Surfboard Manufacturing Association or whatever it's called. There's a lot. Well, the they're going to need surf- a lot of legal dollars. Yeah, they're they, they, a- they aren't, they aren't going to. They're yeah. not going anywhere. Yeah. It ain't going to happen. And the thing about it is, is the classic polyester surfboard is doing just fine in America. Yeah. It's the epoxy boards. We can't build them. We don't have this. We don't have the dedicated workforce, and we we cannot build epoxy boards at the level that they're being made overseas. Like the beautiful quality level uh-huh. for anywhere near the price. Okay. Like we're making epoxies, and a few people, you know. I don't want to point fingers or anything, but I'm probably making more epoxy boards than anyone in America right now. Like we make a, quite a few epoxy boards, right. carbon wraps, stringer epoxy, whatever it is. We work really close with the guys at Pure Glass. We work with Mike at Inertia. We do a lot of epoxy boards and they're good. But to, but the what it costs to live in America, yeah. what we're paying the guys to do the work, you just it's just crazy. You can't compete with the low cost. Right. So what Firewire... And GSI have done with the Hayden shapes and anything around that, the quality of the boards they're bringing in is so high and it's so beautifully finished and it's so well presented. I mean, it's like an extra $100, $150 in labor to get our epoxy boards to really to make these composite boards like that. Yeah. Because we make these crazy beautiful epoxy composite boards in Florida with Drew Baggett at Inspired yeah. Surfboard. Yeah, making the amazing yeah. sandwich boards. Yeah. And the, co- the cork, I was going to say, but he does the other cork, stuff. The cork, right. the composites, all yeah. that stuff. It's, I visited his place. I yeah. Did it. yeah. Okay. It's $150 more just to have a living wage labor. Right. 
to do Which that is kind Drew of stuff and here. a couple guys. Yeah. But to, yeah, you just yeah. you got to pay these guys a living wage. Yeah, for sure. I want to pay them more. And if you say, now you got to hot coat it again and sand it one time so there's no another time so there's no more cloth. Right. You got to do this and you got to put a nice clear coat on it that's a level of a car spray booth. A hundred bucks for Ping. each time. Yeah. You're yeah. like, okay, $50 for the spray. And then mm. while well, you do it, what these guys are doing in Thailand or what we're doing on a much smaller level in Vietnam with our kinetic factory. Yeah. It's sick. The precedence has been set. Okay, Chris Christensen and and Tyler Warren can make these beautiful, high end tinted polished polyester boards and keep them keep the volume low and the prices really high. But you can't do that with epoxies because the ceiling's been set. You got Firewire has set the price on composite epoxy boards. Right, seven hundred and fifty bucks, eight hundred dollars is the top. And GSI has done the same thing with the Future Flex, and we're following suit, and Channel Islands is doing it, and whatever it is, it's like I don't think the the market is willing to pay eleven hundred dollars for a for a, an epoxy composite mayhem or Timmy Patterson or Pizel when they can get a Kelly Slater Firewire Tomo from Thailand for seven hundred and fifty bucks. Yeah. You just, I'm not. Why would I pay 300 more, 400 more dollars? Just to say it was made in USA. Well, it would be more to say it was handshaped by by Matt. That's really, at least from my perspective, like I got to hang out with Matt, call him, tell him what but I no wanted. One's hanging out. With I know, but you I know what I mean. I, got, I yeah, I know. But you can't hang out with me. And no, no. I, I, okay, hang out's the wrong friend, phrase, yeah. but that would be the selling point. The selling yeah. point would be I and didn't just get this and, thing popped and, out. So and to here speak. we are, and that's why. The boutique surfboard manufacturer is never, I think, a good one with some game. If you surf. Like Chris. Like Chris Christensen. Right. Like Tyler Warren. Like a Larry handful Mabel. of others. Yeah, like there's Ryan a bunch. Birch, whoever yeah. you want to be. Ryan's there's not even quite a fucking few. trying. I know. Okay? There's a lot of them out there. There are. It's never been a better time. Look, who's the guy from, whatever, we can name all the names. Yeah, there's a bunch. Those are the ones I'm close to. Right. Um never been a better time because they don't have that middle margin either they're selling direct right if i was just selling direct if i was making carbon wraps in my factory which i make on a good month i make a hundred i'm making i'm gonna make a thousand epoxy boards in my factory in san clemente this year yeah okay there i'm making them i don't if that was my business i wouldn't be able to feed my family yeah. they're made basically as a lost leader to sell my polyesters and to hopefully develop this business with Kinetic where I bring in boards and I have a little bit of margin yeah. because I'm selling to retailers who are then reselling to consumers. Right. And I support the retailers. I sell my boards to retailers. Right. Unless you know me, you're not walking in my warehouse or walking in and writing up an order and paying and buying it direct. Right. Okay. You got to go to surf shops have right. their own overheads. So we sure. sell them at full retail. By splitting the margin, there's no way. No. Okay. Now these guys who are set up boutique style and they're selling direct. Yeah. They can do it. Yeah. Like Javier. Like, how many backyard or small, small volume boutique guys? They're building epoxies. They're all making them look like fire wires. Yeah, I don't even. Uh, yeah. They I, all I, put the one inch wide black stringer down the middle. Like they're right. all scrambling and trying to do it, and they can compete. They, they they call out Firewire, but they're basically copying Firewires. Right. They can compete because they can build a board for, you know, four hundred and fifty bucks and sell it for six hundred and or, or even seven, more seven fifty whatever. But for me, I have to build that board and then sell it to a retailer, and then the retailer sells it. 
You brought up an interesting point, which is um, the the price point of surfboards. And I'm wondering if you do you consider giving kudos to Firewire for, I would suggest you sort of starting to push the ceiling of the retail price point of the surfboard, $750, $850. If you get a board from Javier, one of those XTRs, um, you know, you're looking at 900, sometimes a thousand dollars for a really high performance. The ones we make, I see the prices on the order, on the printed order he sends me. He's not selling them for that much, but well, my point is, is that, it's obviously it's a good thing that the price point <clears throat> is moving up a little well, bit, yeah. and I'm wondering if Firewire deserves some credit for keeping those price points high because with those margins that they're getting, they could certainly like undercut the whole system. Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about it, yeah. but I mean, he's, they're definitely not undercutting the system, and by doing their consignment business, they're they're uh, they're able to keep keep their margin fairly well and keep the retailer's margin fairly small because the retailers, it's money for nothing. You're not putting any yeah. expenditure out. But, you know, then on the other side of all this, you look at what those mad geniuses up in Washington are doing for us with the lip tech. tech. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they've, they've figured out such, for one thing, he sorts such unique materials and he's created such an ingenious low labor manufacturing process that he's able to compete. You mean Mike? Yeah. yeah. Mike Olson. Yeah, because like whatever whatever these constructions are that are in the market right now, carbon wrap and, and spine tech and and firewire this and firewire that and yeah. they're all very labor intensive. Yeah. And that's when you have American people that are trying to you know pay a mortgage wage, and yeah. you just yeah. It's hard. Um but what what they've figured out is one thing he's got better materials that none of us have access we have access to but he's done the hard labor to find them yeah and then he's come up with this ingenious process where i've seen it and the labor is so minimal and it's not the and it's low it's lesser skilled it's not as skilled of labor Mm -hmm. you know what i mean right right. it's not labor that takes 10 years to get good at right might take 10 days yeah just pull a lever yeah put the lay the pieces together in the in the mold and suck it down right um you know, with no sandpaper in a factory, servo factory, <laughs> no sandpaper. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and everything's like so beyond green minded. It's incredible. So what he's done is a whole nother level. What he's shown is that you can, instead of crying and complaining or running around with a G string on at the U S open, you know, trying to get people to remember your bitching ads from the eighties. Yeah. You can just shut the fuck up and do something better. Yeah. He's outside the box is what you're getting at. Way outside the box. Way outside. He's so far beyond us. Yeah. There's a couple of schools of thought on wave storms as I've done these interviews. One is that um, some people feel like, you know, these are great entry point surfboards for the aspirational surfer. But after learning period, um, there's going to be a conversion. They're I think the conversion rate is so fucking low that it doesn't do anyone any good. I think they've completely destroyed San Onofre and Doheny in the summertime. There's so many horrific people out there bouncing around on them. You can't even have a session. <laughs> you could barely surf. It's just open the doors to people who surf five days a year. And I'm not against people having fun, but it's like going to the pool. And they're like having a pool party in the lineups. And it's, I see personally, this is just my opinion, I think the conversion rate's shockingly low. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And that's the the general feeling is it's that person that's like either mountain bikes on the weekend, rides his wave storm, 
or might go to the movies. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're in the not, lineup playing yeah. dumb. They're up and they're just naive and they're just, it's just. Crazy. Do you think it's bad that there's some professional surfers that are sort of um, validating the waves? Well, I mean, what Jamie and Brian does is entertainment. Professional surfers are entertaining. I guess things. what I'm saying is, do you think Jamie and those types, are they having an effect on the sale of wave storms? Like, are they helping push it? I think most of the people that buy Wavestorms don't even know about Jamie's television station right. or any of that. Right. I think that I have an interesting Wavestorm thing. I was in Tavaru my first time ever. You won't believe it. I went to Tavaru my first time ever this year. Wow. And the GoPro guy, that Nick, Nick guy, was out there. Yeah. Uh, like, I don't know. Strider would call it three to four foot. I would say put almost double. I would say double overhead, sloppy cloud break. Ooh. And he was out there. The Nick guy was out there on a on a wave storm for a couple of days with this 280 foot mega yacht parked in the channel. Yeah. Um, and he had these aftermarket single fin bolted through the deck from the top to the bottom. And it was fully, he was like flying down the line, like a, like that monkey on the Sputnik freaking satellite. Like just, <laughs> yeah. Self hooting. Huh? Self hooting. He was kind of hooting at everything and everybody yeah. and hooting us into waves. I mean, his, his manic genius demeanor, you know, yeah. I don't know, but he was just, and evidently one night he came and came on to the camp and was socializing with everyone. He didn't really let anyone else have a word ed edgewise, but, uh, I called him out on that too. Um, he, uh, evidently he's so in tune with wave storms that he loved the ones for a while. And he, all of a sudden the ones he was getting, he didn't like as much. So he contacted Wavestorm and found out that they switched factories in China. And he's like, well, I want ones from the old factory. So he, they gave him the contact, and the old factory said, yeah, we'll make them, but you got to buy a whole container. So the rumor, the story is, is he brought in an entire container just so he'd have his own endless supply of Wavestorms oh from his own factory. Nick from GoPro. Nick from GoPro. Wow. Wavestorms, they're not just for girls anymore. Interesting. Let's switch gears a little bit. You won the Icons of Foam tribute to Simon Anderson, the shaping competition at Sacred Craft, now the boardroom. Um, you bested some guys, Brian Bulkley, Larry Maybill, Jason Bennett, I think maybe Gary Linden, a few other guys I can't remember exactly right now. But in my eyes, that was a big deal for you, Matt, in, in that um, it gave you street cred outside of San Clemente. You've already had plenty of street cred here. But in my eyes, amongst sort of the salty shape or the bastion of California shapers that, that have been around for a while, it sort of stamped you as not only um, – I guess some might have suggested that you were just a marketing genius that got lucky. But now you've proven your salt with a planer in your when hands. When was that? Do you agree with that? 2010. Oh, is that recent? 2010, Simon Anderson. Yeah, I mean – I don't know. I, uh, I'm sure amongst a certain crew of guys much older than me, but I mean, Brian Bulkley was had been working for me for 15 years at that time already. Brian knew damn well that I could shape. Yeah. I mean, he's Brian works for me today. Brian's like my older brother. Yeah. Um, at 2010 was like so recent. It doesn't even. Eight years ago. If I still had to get validity at that point. Well, little, I'm not saying you had to get it. I'm yeah. just saying, do you think that it. <clears throat> I think Did what you, you feel do, good I about think, the win. I, think that, I thought it was cool. Yeah. I was I was stoked. I was proud to have done it and succeeded at it. I wanted to do good in that one. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I could see some of the old salts thinking, oh, okay, now I guess he can shave. I, yeah. I, I think Stretch Rydell really wasn't happy when I got that Shaper of the Year thing in surfing. They, they should change it to Marketeer of the Year. Oh, is that where that came from? I didn't know. Uh, he said it to my face with a smirk and a smile. We had a party at Surf Expo, and I made him. I invited him, and we yeah. hung out. And, but he, he, I think I could, just him alone would make lend me to believe that. Yeah, I'm sure there was many others like him. Yeah, but I know that I was packing up. I would sit and watch Timmy Patterson and all these guys shape, and I packed up my shaping tools and went to Japan as early as '91, and I would shape a hundred boards in two weeks and then spend the next week or so painting them all. And I've known how to use hand-shaped surfboards for almost 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. And also that competition was, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it was kind of, I think it was special because you have a real affinity for Simon and what he did with the three fin. And it's fairly widely known that you were suggesting everybody that ever builds a three fin should give Simon a dollar in royalties. Yeah, I don't think that one's very widely known either because anything that happened before social media didn't happen. Right. It just The world just started six years ago. The world just started. Yeah. It didn't happen. Well, we did Thanks for Three. I don't remember what year that was. I remember that I had Derek Hind write a little essay for me to launch it. And essentially we... We basically pledged $5 for every thruster we made in that year. I think it was 2001. And we would just give, I would just give Simon five bucks for every single thruster I made for one year as a thank you. Yeah. And, and I challenged other people to do it. And no one except for a few guys in their few garage guys did it. Simon said he got a couple of $7 checks from people <laughs> or $23. And I met a couple of people in my travels around the world who said they did it. Well, that's but cool. no one of any substance did it. Right. Why would they validate my marketing scam? Because it was a marketing. It cost me like, you know, six grand or something. No, but deep down, I think you did feel that Simon deserves something. I absolutely yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. He's one of my favorites. Yeah. Him and Mark. And the Aussies are my, I mean, I, whether it's, you know, I hung out with Bob McTavish a couple of weeks ago in no, Spain. No, yeah, I didn't know that. That's yeah. great. I'm hoping to bring him here to do some boards next year. You know, we're honoring Wayne Lynch this year. Yeah, the, that's cool. Yeah. I don't know Wayne. But oh, he's great. I had lunch with him the other day, and he told me some great McTavish stories. Yeah. One of the things he told me, I'll, I'll just relate real quick, is that um, his first board was a Bob McTavish. It was one of those Kios, those super um, V'd out boards. Yeah, he makes them still. Yeah, exactly. And so Wayne went down to Sydney and – walked into the factory and saw all these beautiful, gorgeous boards that are now 8.6, and they look like space machines, and they're just incredible. And and he orders one, and apparently Bob's real busy surfing. So what Wayne thinks happened is that Neil Purchase Sr., who was working shaping for Bob at the time, made him his custom Kia. But when it was delivered to Victoria, or when Wayne went and picked it up, it didn't have hardly any of the V. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a really because those boards really didn't work too good. Too much V. Too much V. But his was just barely. And he looked at it and he went, "This isn't what I wanted." And then he, of course he put it in the water. And Wayne Lynch is now regarded as the first guy to kind of get vertical on the surfboard. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we're we're, st- we're excited to have uh, Wayne Lynch involved. And the what, fact what that, are you going to do? Well, that's proprietary information. Okay. I'm sure you can respect. Well, I mean, that. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing. How it. do you know? <laughs> you might be on the list. No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Come on, what? You would not accept the challenge if I offered it right now. Probably not. Come on. No. 
But some other guys. People are like, going to call you out. They can call me out. I have nothing. <laughs> You've to already won. You're yeah. like, screw that. I've got nothing to gain and everything to lose. Yeah. We're going to be doing three boards like we always do. Now Now we do three boards. It's a man-on-man round-robin competition. No, you did it. You you gave – we did the round those fish once, right? That was a separate – that was a chunk, chunk of foam challenge. Yeah, it was a side, side show. Yeah. yeah, the chunk of foam challenge. Yeah. yeah. That was cool. That was fun. Yeah. We brought Corey and Ward for it. Yeah. Yeah. And Estrada, I think, too, helped. Christensen won. Yep, Chris won, yeah. One of the old, crusty San Diego guys was pretty bitter that he didn't win. And I think I liked his better, but Corey was like, no, 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 this one, this one. And I'm like, okay, that one. And it was Chris's. That was Hank Warner. It was Hank, yeah. And Hank Hank is really um, – and I think rightly so. I think he's a, he's a bit upset, kind of with me and with you. And it was just – it wasn't a happy time for him because he – you know, he just like you just said, you thought his board was the winner, and then all of a sudden Chris won, and so he was like, "What the hell is this?" But there was we didn't know. I agree, there was no malice, but yeah, he but he put his heart and soul into it, yeah. and brought his family down there, and built a beautiful board, yeah. and frankly deserved to win. Probably, we need to make that right. Um, I don't know how to do that. That's your problem. <laughs> I just I had my little my superstar yeah. pilot there, and yeah, we just okay. There was one big problem with his. It was like, it may have been the outline or the rocker, but one thing was really wrong. And Corey's like, this one's nicer, but I think that one will work better. And he, so that's why we picked Chris's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. Anyway, let's move on. I'm okay. More, I'll ask Hank how we can make that right. But he's a legendary shaper and a great guy and been around forever and underrated, frankly, Hank Warner. And blame it on Corey. Okay. We're going to blame it on Corey. So yeah. Corey's got to make it right. Some have suggested, Matt, that the KS Wave Ranch as a competitive arena on the WCT is one-sided. It lends itself to a certain type of surfer. A big guy like, say, Jordy Smith, for instance, doesn't really stand a chance. Your thoughts on the KS Wave Ranch as being a, a competitive opportunity on the CT? I think they learned enough on the first one that I think they might get it right the second one. There's always, I think trying to compare – trying to keep a scale even over a three-day period because you had the guys that surfed on the first day and were getting like sevens and 7.5s. And then two days later, guys were riding essentially the same ride and getting nines. And it's just for the judges to stay on an even keel through that long, they have to figure out a way to not have to keep the scale. Not Almost how to, to pull out even more subjectivity to have sort of like they do with gymnastic where there's these compulsory well, yeah, 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 moves. You have to have, have to yeah, and I, I've, when, when it first got announced, I, told, I talked to all my athletes as much as I could, and I'm not really a strategic coach for them. I was never a pro surfer. So there's a certain zone where I don't really cross over too much. Um, but I told them, I go, this is not a heat. This is not a ride. This is a run. Okay, this is snowboarding in the half pipe. This is figure skating where you have to hit certain compulsory maneuvers. You have, And the announcers almost should know what you're going to do before to make sure you hit what you say you're going to do. And the surfers, to their credit, are like, Matt, you haven't surfed this thing enough. I hadn't surfed it at all. And they're like, the waves aren't all the same. You can't really do that. I'm like, okay, even if you throw the compulsory moves out, you still have to look at it as a run, and you should have it planned, and you should have it on lock. And during the future, the future cup, the first one they did, the test run, mm-hmm. Jordy had came out and said, "I had it." He was the first one to clue into that, right? And I think that they were just, yeah, they were overscoring the barrel. Um, 
and they weren't giving one thing that was really obvious to me is they weren't rewarding risk early in the rides. Like my biased opinion, but you could look, if you think about what I'm thinking about and look at it, Polo Dino was literally blowing his fins out on his backside snaps. Like backside snaps, his fins were out the back. If you were behind the wave, you'd see three fins, like two or three turns in a row early in the ride. He's thinking he's building because he got told risk, risk, risk. And Griffin was doing the same thing because I'm so biased. (laughs) (laughs) But they weren't, but then it would come to the inside. And if he didn't get completely throttled on the barrel or whatever, it'd be like 7.4. And it's like, why am I even taking the risk out the back? Because a lot of guys would just tap, 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 kind of backside snaps that almost you and I could do, Mm -hmm. you know? And then getting really, really deep on that little slab on the inside of the left and get it getting the same score or a better score. Right. I think they can learn. I think I think it's valid. I think it's for one event a year. They need to figure it the fuck out, and I think it's valid. You think it should be an important part, uh, one of eleven reasons why there will be a world champion? Yes, okay. because it's the future, one way or the other. It's the future. I mean, it's going to be a part of surfing in the future and adapting is surfing adapting to, i think sunset beach should be on the way i'm just going to bring this up this is okay. my thing my thing is if we're going to have that then we also need to put those surfers the top surfers in the world in competitive big wave arenas yeah. like mavericks or jaws even sunset if it's a big enough i think I'm jaws, thinking is, jaws is too much to ask puerto escondido when it's 15 feet. puerto escondido would be great um Sunset Beach. I mean, yeah. Margaret's is fairly close to Sunset, but not really. No. Uh, um, Sunset Beach, but do you give them skis? Because, listen, you have the QS. At sun- I was just talking to some one of the surfers about it. I can't remember. Oh, the women are going to have a CT at Sunset next year. So that's a step in the right direction. And I, was, I think I was talking with Caroline. I was flying. I flew home with, from France with Caroline and her family. And she's like, I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I'm like, you're going to rip Sunset. I go, and I just said, Sunset with a sled. You guys are going to have ski assist. So is ski assist, because they have, they'll have ski assist. Yeah. Almost guaranteed. Like yeah. they do at Margaret's or any yeah. other. Gnarly. So you're bringing up the point. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to turn around and ask you. If they do have a men's CT at Sunset, should they have jet ski assist or should they do it like the QS where the guys are coming in like almost dead from exhaustion? Well, um, my my feeling is I, I'm I'm old school. I think they should do it the old way. I think they should do it the way Kong had to do it and the way those guys had to do it. Um, but from an end user fan perspective, look, more waves are going to be caught. Yeah. That makes sense. If it if they do it paddling only, then they could have six man heats. They could have four, four man heats. You know what I mean? Or overlapping like they do at Pipeline. My concern with Sunset is that the surfers tend to focus on the inside bowl and and i want to see guys i want to see kong rolling down the windows on west west set well that's sets. you just that's easy the judges will just give a seven for a barrel on the inside bowl and the surfers will know they got it they got yeah. to ride the whole way that's what it, that's what i want to see i want to yeah. see that west bowl being maximized yeah, and then absolutely. setting up the insides yeah i think it's great and i think but to finalize we agree that you should have a wider variety of waves on the world tour. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're going to do the wave ranch, you've got to do a big wave arena for these guys. Cause yeah. I don't want my world champion to not be able to surf Waimea Bay. I'm sorry. I just, but our logistically world, it's just too hard. No, and they but do know I'm how to using that as Waimea. an example. They know how to but surf you can do Mavericks. You but, can do definitely okay. do Puerto. John John won Waimea Bay. Andy it's, Irons no, won Waimea Bay. Bruce I, Irons won Waimea Bay. I agree, but. If Gabriel Medina Toledo, with Pig Dog, I, I agree. Bay, I agree, but half asleep. But Philippe Toledo, we don't know yet. Mouth. Yeah, we don't know yet. 
yeah. Toledo. I'm not saying he can't. I hope he does. I'm a huge fan of his. Yeah. But there are guys on tour that we're not sure if they're going to be able to do it. Yeah. And I need my world title. Those guys guy. aren't world champs. Well, not yet, yet. But my point is, Adriano be, would do it. He'd oh, for sure. No, I thing. would suggest yeah. you many of them would. But there's yeah. a few that you're like, God, if that was our world champ, I'd be a little bit bummed. Only because I want to see it. I think Philippe Salidos would paddle in so quick and early and easy and just. Glide. I hope so. Yeah. I want. I want him. To, I think he's worthy. I'm All just, those guys. I'm just suggesting that it needs to be a part of the determining of our world title, a yeah. big wave arena. I agree. We've said a lot. We haven't even mentioned the El Patron, <laughs> yeah. which I'm a huge fan of. Thank you for making well, me that just, one, Yeah, We just get all sucked up into the past. It's like I, I'm not a relic. It's like I feel like I'm as vital and creative, and I think I'm better at what I do today than I've ever been in my life. It's funny because I saw the Retro Ripper on your site two days ago when I was doing some research. Yeah. I was like, that board looks killer, so too. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. We'll do it again later. We'll talk about the modern mayhem some other time. Yeah, exactly. So um, thanks for being on. Thanks for your time. Okay. I know you're a busy guy. And uh, until next time, okay. adios. Thanks.